Quercus Robor. What is a Quercus Robor? An oak tree. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Corylus Avalana. Is a pine tree. It's hazel. Hazel, damn it. So close. <laughs> uh, um, Alnus uh, Glutinosa. Fat tree. <laughs> Alder. <laughs> Alnus Glutinosa. Where's Glutinosa come from? I'm not sure. Yeah. Fat Aldus. I can do. Rattus Rattus. Magnolia. Rattus Rattus Magnolia. The Magnolia <laughs> Rat. He's so showy. <laughs> Has plumage. Yeah. I don't know how. <laughs> the fur grows before the skin. Oh. <laughs> He's like a pillow. Yeah. All my stuffing's on the insides. <laughs> hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Georgian era. The little village of Alderby in Norfolk is a place where not much of anything happens. Today, it has a population of just over 400. In the 1940s, the village had toyed with the idea of becoming an industrial powerhouse when the local apple-growing company bought out a local rush-weaving company as a way of ensuring that their formerly seasonal workers could be retained and employed all year round. So it's mixing the high-octane business practices of apple-picking and rush basket weaving to create... Oh, I didn't know what the rush basket thing was at first. So it's literally using rushes to, to yeah, weave, weave, right. weave baskets, which then I assume put the apples in and sell us... You know, a package. A packet. Yeah, you could, you could sell a basket of apples, top. couldn't you? Yeah. Unfortunately, a mere 50 years later, the decision was taken to move the weaving operation 10 miles east to Lowestoft, which is the most easterly town in the whole of the UK. Because if you are practising a traditional East Anglian industry... because if you're practicing a traditional east anglian industry i guess you may as well go all in on the concept of east yeah it's the most easterly place and the rush company still exists east what's it called Hmm? east anglian no the rush company i I don't know what it's called today um but there you can still search for it in lower stuff they do still exist and they still weave baskets is that it just baskets i think there are other stuff i think they weave um what else could you make dartboards I don't know. Yeah, rush-made mats and... Yeah. Yeah, probably objet d'art and stuff like that. It's a hipster art. Yeah, they've gone hipster. That's what Lowestoft's all about, you know. Yeah. Over 150 years before this doomed attempt to industrialise, the village was much like any other in an out-of-the-way place in England. A collection of farmers with a cluster of shops to provide them with the few luxuries that their meagre earnings could afford. After they paid their rent to the landlord. Naturally. Yeah. It was into this village in 1784 that a little boy called John Towell was Damn it, born. I was going to say John. Well, it's normally a John with it's us, It's always isn't it? a John. Well, this is John Towell. He was the son of a shopkeeper. Though this should have afforded a certain amount of relative luxury for young John, it turned out that his dad wasn't a particularly good businessman. He preferred to spend his time telling tales about famous and successful ancestors who had lived in the big city of Norwich, mm. you know, rather than trying to emulate them. Yeah, it was all about. Well, you'd never guess what my great grandfather did. It's like, yeah, but your shop shit. What does he sell? Uh, it's the local village shop, so I'm guessing it's, it's the corner shop. Yeah, it's the groceries. You know, yeah. the stuff that the farmers can't grow for themselves, they go to Thomas Tarwell. 
It's full of tampons. And... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the local tampon shop. Yeah. They had much more of a selection back in the day. The one thing that he was apparently good at, though, John's father, was reproducing. John had many brothers and sisters, and then even more half-brothers and sisters, due to his dad's philandering. All of these children had constant needs for things like food and clothing, and it steadily drained the family finances. It's a knocking shop. (laughs) What's that mean? A knocking shop is a brothel. Oh, yeah. So I'm right. Yeah. Well, no, he wasn't... He had a shop of sorts. Yeah, but he... He wouldn't have been charging for the services. I don't think there were local single women who were going, do you know what I really need? That's the point. They weren't single. Neither was he. Well, we we know he wasn't single, but as to the women that he um, made children with... Listen, he provides a service, right? And a child. Yes. Comes with one free child. And he doesn't deny that child. No, no. To be fair, actually... That is true. He could have turned around. Maybe he had a very distinctive face and yeah. it was like, no, Thomas, we know this is your kid. Like, he's got the Tawell... He's got that, that big nose and no lips. <laughs> it's quite clearly yours now. Pay, yeah. pay. John himself was a sickly child who wasn't very good at sports. Also, he kind of tended to stand out as he had a crop of bright ginger hair and an unfortunate squint in his left eye. He's Tom York. Yeah, Well, naturally, being that he wasn't a musical genius, this led to him being teased by the other children and generally ostracised. No one wanted to play with flame-haired Squinty John, (laughs) who was always coughing into a tissue. No. Because he had tuberculosis from a very, very young age. Be honest, would you have played with him? Kids are cruel, probably not. (laughs) No, I I had a desire to be part of the in-group, so no, I would have gone along with the teasing, I imagine. Uh, he would have been in the group as the wild card. Squinty John. Yeah. He's just so happy to be there, he'll literally do anything. Yeah. John, eat this battery. Okay. John, 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 John. They're... Go to the hospital, John. <laughs> They're laughing with me. They're laughing with me. Without friends his own age, John was befriended by his teacher, who would encourage him to do extra work and provide him with his own personal books to augment the basic education that the other boys were content with. So the the I'm guessing the older gentleman teacher was just like, finally, a boy who doesn't have all of these distractions from study. Yeah. This is the clay from which I can mould an educated man. Is this going to happen? Well, what other, what other options has he got? Dying of tuberculosis. Mm. John developed a sense of intellectual superiority and was determined to prove that he was too good to live out his life in this little village. It's going to the big city of Norwich. No, unfortunately Norwich doesn't feature any more in this. Oh. Put Norwich out of your mind. Glorious city though it is, it's dead to us for the, for the purposes <laughs> of this episode. When he wasn't studying, he was working in the family shop, where his aptitude for business was soon very apparent, and either because he genuinely wanted his son to achieve or because Thomas was worried that his son would make him look bad. He became his father's pimp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John was sent away to become an apprentice shopkeeper in the coastal town of Great Yarmouth. So, I don't don't know. Okay, right. If this comes across as a rejection. But what I do know is the experience of watching his dad be a terrible businessman and fritter away the family finances and being bullied and belittled by the kids... It's going to leave a bit of a lasting scar on John Towell. He is not 
ever going to be able to let it go. He has to now be the best of the best. Well, that's true, only because the teacher stepped in to fill that role of giving him some sort of con- surrogate self- father, yeah, self confidence, and um... but all of that teacher's attention was based purely on the fact that John was proving he was smart. So it's like, in order for people to give me attention and for people to love me. I have to prove that I'm smarter than everyone else and I'm better than everyone else and I have to continue to achieve otherwise the the only people who will respect me will drift away. <laughs> so he has this desperate desire to achieve and to do well. For a second there, the the the, the um the energy you put out there do you, do you recognize yourself in this do I identify bit? myself yeah. with young John Towell? I'm not saying that you you aren't a social reject in any way. You Quite a few friends and you were desperation to achieve. And you weren't sickly. But on, on, on some levels, that? yes. Yeah. You know, I, I understand that urge of, oh, I've, I, I am the best and I must now continue at yeah. all times to be the best and I can't accept anything else. And if I'm not going to be the best, and I may have to resort to cheating. And then burning. <laughs> burn everyone else. Yeah. If there are no witnesses, I'm still the winner. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he went to Great Yarmouth. Whether because he asked to just leave because his dad's shop was just you know, I imagine every time John did something good for the shop, you know, like he got the uh, stock sorted or you know he put prices on things. Yeah, <laughs> he'd come back in and his dad would collect the money and not just let people walk out the shop with items. <laughs> you know, he'd get all of this set up and then his dad would come in and go, "No, that's not how we do things. Don't don't run before you can walk, John. Yeah. You got to learn my system." Which is mainly swapping goods for sexual services. Yeah. Soon after arriving in Great Yarmouth, though, John became aware of the existence of a community of Quakers within the town. Oh, he's going to be an absolute hero, isn't he? Uh, as Are they going to take him under the wing and just turn, turn out a beautiful boy? What do we know about the Quakers? Just amazing. They've always been the heroes of our stories. Yeah. Is this a, a, a twist? Have you found the evil Quakers? I found an evil Quaker. Oh, maybe. That's but at the moment, though. he's just a an idealistic young boy who wants to break into the world of business. And as an aspiring businessman, John was impressed by the amount of businesses that had been started by Quakers, which at this point included two banks called Lloyd's and Barclays. Are they Quaker-owned? Well, not anymore. They were Quaker-founded banks, yeah. yeah. Over the first half of the 19th century, they would go on to found businesses as varied as Cadbury's, Clark's Shoes and Carr's Biscuits just to name a couple from the seas. Later in history, they also helped to found Greenpeace and, unbelievably, Sony. That's a Quaker. A Japanese Quaker was a co-founder of Sony. But, and it's very important this, they had nothing to do, and still have nothing to do, with Quaker Oats. That was the one I was going to bring up. Not a Quaker-owned company. Round trees. Quaker. Um. Fries, the chocolatier. Quaker. Uh, Bernard Matthews. Sodomite. Oh. (laughs) No, I have no idea. (laughs) The reason for this natural affinity towards business, at least in part, was because of how strict the Quakers were regarding engaging activities such as drinking, dancing, gambling, going to the theatre, reading fiction, painting, and all sports. With all of this banned, work was pretty much the only thing a Quaker could do outside of meetings. This strict work ethic meant that the Quakers had developed a reputation for being trustworthy in business, hence the banks, 
and the sight of a Quaker in the traditional long black coat and wide-brimmed hat was taken universally as a sign that the person could be trusted to deal fairly and to the benefit of all. Isn't that a great reputation? Isn't it just? so? Nobody has that anymore. (laughs) What what outfit can I put on that you'll give me money? (laughs) John's dad had figured that out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> had a lot of rhinestones yeah. assless else. chaps yeah, it was just rhinestones <laughs> he he did he, he invented stra- the first in strategic, <laughs> in strategic places naturally though John Towell was drawn to this group and made it his mission to join them as soon as possible unfortunately the early 19th century was a time when the Quakers were at their most distrustful of outsiders it was incredibly difficult to be accepted as a full member, and members could be thrown out for the slightest infraction. Quakerism itself almost died out completely, because when they started in the 17th century, it was uh, it was counterculture, essentially, and they welcomed everyone. And at their height, they had maybe 70,000 members in Britain. By this time, because they sort of become very strict about what was and wasn't acceptable to be a Quaker, they were dwindling to maybe 19,000 total. So they were definitely in danger of um coming extinct. Yeah, but are there any Quakers left? Yeah, yeah. Is it still a thing? It's still a thing, yeah. If I'm... you want to become a Quaker, you can find a Quaker's meeting house. I don't think they accept me. They're, they're more accepting than they were here. This was like a low ebb for them because they they developed this reputation of being, you know, fair in dealings and they were doing so well as a small insular group, they were like, We don't want to risk that by letting in outsiders. You know, yeah. we need to protect the reputation at all costs. Would they, would they accept an agnostic with a tendency for Terry's Chocolate Orange? I don't think if you described yourself in those terms, they would. I think you need to profess who a, I am, a love of God. No, that's who I am. Okay. Take it or leave it. Because the main thing of Quakers was it's about having a direct interaction with God. Right. So it's, we don't need a priest to tell us what God wants us to do. We will sit in our meetings. And, I mean, it, some were led you know, and had a format, but some were literally, they would sit and wait until the Spirit of God took them and then they would stand up and speak. Right. And these meetings would just go on for hours where you'd just be waiting and any any member of the congregation could stand up and give a sermon, essentially, or speak or say whatever they felt God was putting into their minds. The pressure if um, God hasn't arrived for you for yeah, a few been weeks. weeks. Oh, God. Just to stand up and I've lost it. say something virtuous. Yeah. I I think being nice to, to people is nice. Oh, shit. <laughs> He's I can't believe doing I tongues. Said that. <laughs> Play it off. <laughs> no, no, these aren't tongues. These aren't people who talked in tongues. Um, yeah, so even if you'd managed to get in and you were a full member, the slightest infraction uh, and a, a council of the elders could decide to disbar you, essentially. However, even though they wouldn't consider admitting John until he'd proven his dedication and character over many years, they did allow him to attend meetings and considered him to be a friend of the Quakers. Mm. So kind of like a junior Quaker, Quaker in training. John took to wearing the Quaker dress and made connections within the Quakers that ensured that he was soon doing well enough in business to move to London. Mm. And full Quakerism. Not yet. He's still he's still a trainee Quaker, but he's a trainee Quaker in London, which is where the it was the epicenter for Quakers because you know when your entire religious sector basically the guys who do business 
you're going to go to London. It was in London in 1807 that he decided to try and apply to become a full member of the Quakers. He was interrogated by some of the elders over the course of five months. That's not all in one go. Yeah. It's like multiple times. Did they have a break? Yeah. They had pee breaks scheduled in every four hours. Before finally being accepted into the fold on the 8th of December. Anyway, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The, The... it would have been uh, swearing was right out and yeah. also you weren't supposed to use the names of the month because they were all uh, pagan so you couldn't say January because that ref- referenced the god Janus yeah. which is a pagan god so you had to say first month so they would be on the 11th day of the first month all right and thou and thee they used all those sort of archaic terms it was part of the Quaker aesthetic really less than a year after achieving the status of full member a rumour started to circulate that John, he was wooing a non-Quaker. This information proved to be factually incorrect, as John had actually already married a woman called Mary Freeman on November 9th, 1808. November 9th, what would it be? 09 of the 11th month. Yes, the 9th day of the 11th month. Year of our Lord, 1808. So... Yeah, he'd married a non-Quaker. And can you can you guess whether that was on the do or don't list for Quakers, marrying a non-Quaker? Was she a Christian? She was a Protestant, yes. So she, No, she was a C of E. So, yeah. So, so where did Quakers um, branch from? They were, Prot- they were part of the Protestant branch. They were breaking away from the Catholic Church. They were a different pr- Protestant denomination, essentially. So is it... A th- I don't know. They're not obviously not happy. Mm-hmm. Is it a kicking out offence? Yeah, it was a kicking out offence. And John was summarily stripped of his hard-fought position as a full Quaker. But he kept attending meetings, wearing the outfit, and taking advantage of the fact that everyone outside of the group thought he was a Quaker. He was working for a wholesale drug and medicine business. And they're happy for him still to turn up to me. He's still friend of the Quakers. Yeah. Because they're nice people. Yeah, they're like, well, you've... you've, um, done this you knew that you shouldn't have done this and this is a reason for us to kick you out but we don't hate you no we don't hate you and you've always you know worked with our interests at heart so we're gonna basically it was a demotion rather than a expulsion yeah he would still be allowed to be buried in a quaker burial ground if he had kids they could still be um put on the quaker birth register so he was yeah it was a demotion rather than kicking out but for them it was like you are no longer a full member which means you're not allowed to come to certain ones of the meetings you're not allowed to contribute to certain funds but for the layman like if if me and you were two london street urchins and we saw john in his quaker outfit and a fully fledged quaker they'd be the same to us yeah we wouldn't we wouldn't pick up on the difference we'd we'd rob both of them equally because they're bound to have lots of money yeah and we'd be poor with holes in our shoes but a twinkle in our eyes yeah and a nice hat yeah a top hat that's seen better days, a la Artful Dodger. I'd have a bowler. <laughs> you own three. We we do own a bowler and a topper, so I can I can pretty much. You've do got that a top now. hat in this house. There's a topper in this house, yeah. Stop saying topper. That's what that's what those of us who own them call them. <laughs> I'll never be a topper. <laughs> yes, you will always be the a bottomer. power bottom. <laughs> so yeah, he kept attending. He was working for a wholesale drug and medicine business called Spring and Marsden at the time and was making quite good money. Though not as much as he might have hoped. 
and with two young children to feed, because it turned out that Mary Freeman was uh, very virile. Yeah. He wondered if there might be a way to make a little bit of extra money on the side of his legitimate business deals. A friend of John's called Peter Bedford had a vision of John Towell hanging from a gallows. Mm-hmm. This was a Quaker vision, so this was direct from God. Oh, so they're taking it seriously. Well, Peter Bedford is, because this isn't, you know, they're not doing drugs and getting visions. Yeah. This is straight from heaven itself. Convinced that his friend was about to do something that would lead to his doom, Peter went to see John at his house in Shoreditch, probably feeling a bit silly once he got there. Because, you know, he's, oh my God, I must warn John. And then as you walk in there, you're like, I'm going to tell my friend that I had a vision of him. I had a dream. I had a dream that you were hanging. Oh, listen. (laughs) Are you doing naughties? John, John, tell me. Are you doing naughties? But yeah, even though he felt silly, he asked to speak to John alone. So as not to embarrass himself in front of John's wife, Mary. Was he expecting to like open like run round there kick the door open and see him burning a bible <laughs> well i don't know what he was expecting it's but imminent he was shown He's into john very specific about that he was shown into john's study where the two men could talk privately and he said i have come to tell thee that i believe thou art on the eve of committing a crime that will bring thee to the gallows mm. rather than reassure peter that he was being silly john burst into tears He then pulled open a drawer of his desk and showed Peter a large pile of forged money that he'd been planning to launder through Quaker-run banks. Wow. Yeah. John made a big show of ripping the notes to shreds and then thanked his friend for stopping him from making a terrible mistake. Peter Bedford, thinking that he had served the purpose that Lord God himself had sent him to do. Just intuit it. I think it is... It's intuition. It's he probably because he was a good friend. Of John saw that John was struggling financially. You know, noticed some throwaway comments that John might have made, but just unconsciously hadn't put it together. Yeah, and then it was through. You know, if if your subconscious figures something out, you're going to try and parcel that in a way that your conscious can accept. And for Peter, it was this is a vision from God. Yeah. So you know, he he felt that he'd served his purpose, which was why he agreed to keep the entire thing secret. Because he was just happy that he had been chosen as the vessel. To save this guy. Yeah, and to give this man a second chance to be a better, nearly Quaker. Mm. John himself did indeed see it as a second chance. To be more careful. Early in 1813, John visited an engraver, saying that he was Mr Smith from Uxbridge Bank. He asked if the engraver wouldn't mind engraving a plate for the new £1 note that the bank was planning to issue. That's crazy. He said he would need 500 test notes made up to check the quality before he could commit to paying the full cost of the new plate. So he basically, he just walked in with a drawing of what the £1 banknote looked like. And go, make this. Make sure it is perfect in every way. And then make me 500 copies. I'll be back to check to make sure they're perfect in every way. Exactly like the ones we're currently issuing. Yeah. When he returned a few days later, he insisted that the copy was... These are some uh, ominous terms. Fatal to his object. And demanded that the engraver try again. The engraver instead decided to visit the Uxbridge Bank, who informed him that Mr Smith did not work for the bank and was probably using him as an accessory to forgery. Yeah. When, he, had a go, he had a go at the first one. If he'd done it perfect, it, yeah. or he just paid him out of the 500. <laughs> well, I don't... 
I, I wouldn't take it out of the 500 notes that I just made. I'd be like, no, I want different money, please. But yeah. This is why you have to be self-sufficient. Well, the problem here is this was a time when every bank issued their own notes. So paper money was sort of everywhere because it had exploded um, around this time because it was um, replacing the fact that we'd spent all of our money on the Napoleonic Wars. But it wasn't um, regulated in any way. So banks could just issue something and say, this thing's worth £1. And if you bring it to our bank, we will provide you with the £1 that it represents. So it was easier to forge because it wasn't like today where there's only one centralised yeah, and there wouldn't have been... No, sorry, two centralised, because obviously the Bank of Scotland. And there would have been none of the security measures. Oh, you know, no. The hologram you... and the see-through thing and the, the queen that moves and... No, it was it was basically on how um, intricate the, the engraving was. Right. Which is why you wanted it absolutely bob-on perfect, because that's how they check. But when John Towell returned on Friday the 28th of January, he was first shown a big stack of notes that were perfect in every way. Happy. Happy John. Mm-hmm. He was then arrested. Sad John. So he he literally had the big stack of money shown to him. It was right there. He was about to put his hands on it. And then a constable stepped out and went, no. So the bank had just provided all that money for it. No, uh, yeah, well, I don't know the how. The hadn't went... gone back and made an engra- the perfect engraving and printed it. Just to... The he bank might... would have gone, okay, he might give, have done him, it. The bank... give him this when he comes in. It might have been the bank went, do you know what? We are short of some one pound notes and you have done a good job on this. So, Two birds, one stone. We'll yeah. pay you the reward money and a little extra bonus if you'll just run us off a few copies. Yeah. Now, at the time, forgery was a hanging offence. Though ironically, a hundred years earlier, it was just a few days in the pillory. So it had gone from being something where you'd just be, have some things thrown at you to being a hanging offence. However, the Quakers who ran Uxbridge Bank didn't want the scandal of a man who identified himself as a Quaker being publicly hung for forgery. Yeah, because he's wearing the outfit. Yeah, it might hurt their business interests. They the, were like... The brand. Yeah. We don't we don't want the Quaker brand sullied, so what can we do? Dress him up different. That's... Well, no, because everyone knows John right. as a Quaker. He was known... As um, Quaker John. No, he, when he was selling all of these um, medicines and stuff, he was literally known around London as the Travelling Quaker. That was that was his nickname. Right. So everyone would know him as Quaker John. Yeah. Um, so they don't they don't want him to be hung because everyone will a- attend the hanging and it'll be oh look a Quaker who was forging money. Oh, all of my money's with a with a Quaker bank. Maybe I want to mm. maybe I want to move it from there because apparently they're very untrustworthy. Obviously, they don't want John to get off scot-free. They don't want him to just be let loose on the streets of London again because he might continue with this forging business. So what to do? Um, Put him to work. Well, there was a new option. Recent option. Oh, send him to Australia. Yeah, transportation. It's like, we don't want you killed, but we definitely don't want you here. Quaker down under. He is. (laughs) He will be one of the first Quakers down under. Because obviously, you know, the well, a, a large proportion of that community in Australia were ex-convicts, so you wouldn't get a lot of Quakers there. And the ruling classes were generally, you know, Church of England. Yeah. So you wouldn't have Quakers as part of the ruling elite. Is he going to get on well or not? I don't know. I don't know if he's going to absolutely explode. This is a story of redemption. Is it? Possibly. Okay. So... The managers of the bank arranged for John to be offered a plea deal. If he admitted to forging, 
in order to keep the case out of the courts, he would be allowed to live in Australia. Mm -mm. John was given 14 years transportation and was taken to the Marquis of Wellington, which was a boat, on September the 1st, 1814, for the five-month journey to Sydney. So before that, he'd been put on a prison hulk, which is just a boat that's being used as a prison so that you can't escape. And apparently he got the worst of it because if there's one thing that jailers love to do is to take people who were doing quite well before they committed crimes and just beat the ever-loving shit out of them. Yeah. It's like if, you, if you've got a guy who's, you know, been in, the, in poverty his entire life and you're stealing a loaf of bread, yeah, the jailers tended to be a bit like, oh, well, hard luck, mate, you got caught. But when you've got someone who was, you know, a successful businessman who was forging money, they're like, ha, ha, ha. A true sadistic. Yeah. Come over here, yeah. bend over. What's going to happen? <laughs> Whatever we want. So, yeah, five-month journey. Five-month <laughs> journey to Sydney where he was the whipping boy yeah. of pretty much everyone on that ship. That sounds like a bit more than that, Joe. And it was while on this journey that John Towell realised that he would be using... That he could fit many things. Well, he realised that once he got there, things weren't going to get better because he would be expected to use his weedy little body to break rocks unless he could convince the authorities in the colony that he had a skill that they could use. Hmm. So he's like, oh no, I'm really good at selling things, but that's not going to fly over there. Has he become a bank? A forger. Sorry? He's a for- he's a convicted forger. I understand, but... And the first thing he's going to do as he walks off the boat is go, right, time to set up a bank. <laughs> I don't know. They call me Johnny Trust. Trusty Trust Pants. It's like, you know, when kids, um, like, family moves towns mm. and they, they can go to the new school and be... Whoever brand, they want to be. Whoever they want to be. It could be Johnny Banks. <laughs> well... No, he might even not be called Johnny anymore. He's not quite that on the nose, but reasoning that he'd learned a little bit about medicines as a pharmaceutical rep, essentially. I forgot he did that. John decided to double down on forging by lying about his profession, and upon arrival, he claimed to be a druggist. So he's done exactly what I said. <laughs> yeah, but he hasn't gone quite to banking. He said, "I I can dispense drugs. Yeah. I am an apothecary." <laughs> <laughs> He choked on his own lie. I am an apothecary, you know. With no internet to check up on his claim, John, Why? a convicted forger, was taken at his word and sent to work at the dispensary in Sydney Hospital, which was a pretty cushy job for a convict. Basically, the Quakers have been like, you're going to Sydney and you're going to break rocks in an Australian mine mm. for 14 years. That'll learn you. And on his first day, he's going over to the hospital where he's going to work an office job, essentially. So things have turned out as good as they can when you've been Would convicted you of forging. The majority of the, the population of Australia at the time, I'm not talking like the native population, were criminals. No, it was starting to be on the turn. Right. Because these were starting to become cities in their own right and people were still being transported, but other people were moving there specifically because they saw the, you know, the opportunity. Right. So we're in that kind of halfway house where oh, so it's no it's... longer just a prison colony, but it's not quite yet a free, independent country. Right. So he's there, he's in the hospital, nice cushy, cushy job, which went from, you know, he was caught and it was, oh, I'm going to be hung to, oh, I've got a new job. It's lovely. Yeah, it's nice and warm over here. Yeah. And, you know, my tuberculosis is so much better now that I'm in this dry, arid environment. It's really cleaning, yeah, cleaning yeah. it up. I feel better than I've felt for years. He messed it up within the first few months 
being caught trying to steal towels from the hospital store. As a result of the attempted theft, John was sent to work in a mine for a year, which was arguably where he should have been in the first place. So <laughs> He just skipped it for a bit. Yeah. So he, he went, just took a detour. He went to the mine in the end. Did he get to take the towels with him? No. 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 They were white fluffy ones. You wouldn't take those to a mine. He got a grey rag. Think how expensive. You know, you know, there's billions of them in hotel in laundry. Think how expensive a white fluffy towel. Was perfectly what, in white. The early eighteen hundreds. Yeah. 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 True. It's like three children. Well, it was enough that they were like, right. Yeah. Even though we don't have enough people to dispense the drugs, you're gone for a year yeah. to learn your lesson. <clears throat> the year of backbreaking labour took its toll on sickly John Towell, and soon after his return to Sydney, he was hospitalised. Whilst in bed, waiting to see if he would live, John overheard the doctors complaining that the stores of medicine were basic at best, and John felt that this was a business opportunity that no one had yet exploited, and decided to keep his head down and bide his time, mm. hoping that no one would. After six years in the colony, John applied to the governor for a ticket of leave. This would allow him to earn an income and, as long as he stayed within an approved area, he would only need to attend a weekly roll call to prove that he had not absconded. Right. So it's it's a bit like going from... Um, parole. Yeah it's, yeah, it's basically parole. But a bit less, it seems. A bit less involved. You've just got to... Like, yeah, turn up once a week. Yeah. Say, You've got to see I your face, left. yeah. He decided not to mention his year of hard labour for stealing supplies and, predictably... Nobody checked his claim that he'd been a model prisoner for the entirety of those six years. <laughs> so he went, and have you been good? And he went, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, always working in this hospital. No gaps. Look at my dress. Yeah. <laughs> and they went, yes. <laughs> okay. Your hat does check out. <laughs> you are incapable of lying. This convicted forger is a trustworthy sort. He spent a year working as a clerk for a merchant. However, his main aim was to convince as many of the wealthiest people in Sydney, as he could, that he was a good and trustworthy man. His charm offensive was calculated to ensure that when he applied for a conditional pardon, he would have enough people the governor personally knew willing to speak up for him. So he's, he, he sought a job specifically that would allow him access to some of the the new nobility of Sydney, basically, the, the movers and shakers, and working as a clerk for this merchant, he had opportunities to go to the rich people's houses. Right. And he was always very fawning, very sort of reverential, you know, just couldn't do enough for them. And they all went, oh, okay, this John, this John Towell, he's a nice guy. I can't imagine that he was a forger. He's always so honest and he's so scrupulous. And Would they be aware of that? Potentially. Yeah. Or is he, Potentially not, he that's true. That? Yeah. Where's his wife? She's like, Still in London. Yeah. Struggling with two kids. Yeah. Because, you know, up until six years in... He wasn't able to make any money, so... Well, he's not sending any back, is no. he? He's forgot about her. Oh, no, he's a Quaker. It's a redemption... He's not a Quaker. It's a redemption story of a Quaker. No, it's not. It is. It's so a, It's a race to the bottom. After only half of his sentence, so seven years in the colony, John was given a conditional pardon and was basically able to do anything a free man in Australia could do except return to England. Right. So the only part of his original sentence that was still sticking was don't return for 14 years. Which was the last thing John actually wanted to do, as England had many privately run pharmacies, whereas Australia, at this point, had none. John ordered a store of medicines and stocked a new shop. 
he decided that he knew enough about drugs from his time as a rep to pass as a trained pharmacist, and the rest he could pick up as he went along. And on March 1st, 1820, he opened the doors of the first pharmacy in Australian history. Yeah. Yep. Despite having no formal medical training. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, well, he's a merchant. Yeah. Yeah. He's a businessman. He You know, how much of medicine... You know, we're only mixing things that could kill you if you mix them wrong. I'm sure it'll be fine. It's like the owners of... Well, Johnson and Johnson and Johnson. I like how you remember there were three of them originally. Yeah, is that from you? Yep. Um, The owners of that now, they don't know how to make the product. No, but when I say, you know, he opened the first pharmacy, he didn't hire a druggist to work front of counter. Oh, right. <laughs> he, was, he was also the one mixing these things. Christ. Basically, they come with little sort of paper instructions, you know, just like reminders to the pharmacy of, yeah, one grain of this is fine, two grains deadly, don't forget. And he had to try and quickly squirrel all that information away in his brain so when somebody came in, he could sound authoritative and go, oh, yes, I shall make you this tincture of such and such and you'll be right as rain. John was quickly making money hand over fist, and he was able to expand the business to sell things like veterinary products. Mm. So he started um, sorting out the health of the animals in Australia as well. Little plastic toys. Yeah, little lollipops. fancy goods. He did sweets, yeah. Stickers. <clears throat> mm. Yeah, he did the first packs sunglasses. of Panini football stickers. Yeah, Sunglasses, definitely. Got to have those in a pharmacy. And Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how they coped before sunglasses in Australia. Everyone must have just been squinting the entire bloody time. That's where John's got one up on everybody else. Yeah, he's already got the squint. (laughs) (laughs) Where everyone squints, suddenly I belong. That's it, no one's noticed. But not only was he able to expand his business... And his ginger hair has been bleached by the sun, a glorious blonde. Strawberry blonde now. Yeah. Yeah, but not only did he expand his business, he was able to pay for the passage for his wife Mary and their two children to join him. So after seven years of near destitution in the streets of London, Mary was now being provided with an all-expenses-paid cruise to Sydney, Australia, where she would live as a fancy woman, wife to a successful businessman. Well, she's got to make the decision now. Does she want to leave her current... Destitution. No, no, husband. Oh, no, she was was, was, um, faithful. Was she? The whole time? Yeah. When when the we say time. when we say he was chucked out of the Quakers for breaking their laws, he married for love. You know, he genuinely loved this woman, and he the first opportunity he had enough money to get her over. He did it. He did it, and they they quickly reconciled, and they were a good power couple in Sydney sort of society because he started joining like the local trade boards. You know, he started buying up land and started becoming a landlord. He was just really expanding a proper business empire in sydney and the surrounding areas and with the family reunited john decided that in order to cement his position in sydney high society he needed to start engaging in philanthropic acts so he started he founded a girls school he would pay for um, award ceremonies he would um, you know he would give large donations to charitable organizations because he was making so much money, he didn't know what to do with it. Because by the time his sentence officially ended in 1828, he was worth well over £10,000, which was a lot right. in then money. Is that a millionaire? Yeah, he was essentially a millionaire. And he appeared for all the world like the perfect example of a reformed criminal. So this was what the system was supposed to do. He'd been sent over to Australia as a wretched 
Forger. Nothing's changed. Where's the crime you're hiding? There's no crime. There is. You're going to reveal it. John was also responsible for a string of grisly murders. (laughs) No, John was also responsible for setting up the first Quaker meeting house in Australia, paying for the building out of his own wealth. To all intents and purposes, it seemed like he was trying to repent for his sins and make amends with the Quaker community. He was planning by this stage to go back to London. And in order to, as a peace offering, he wanted to go back to the Quaker meetings in London and say, I'm reformed. I've learned the error of my ways. And to show you how sorry I am, I have also set up a Quaker meeting house and I've got a group of Quaker friends going in Australia. So we now have Quakers in the new world, essentially. Or possibly he just wanted to rub their noses in it. Yeah. So... uh, I don't I don't quite know which way to go with this. I think part of it was I want I've always wanted acceptance. I've always wanted people to say I'm great and I'm super. And he kind of hoped that, you know, coming from such a low ebb that he he was now worth more than he ever had been with all the Quaker connections in London. You know, he was doing better on his own when he'd been left with absolutely Why nothing. Why does he want to move back? That the draw to be accepted is that great that he's going to do the fa- that five month journey just to yeah he, say, well he left, done John he left in disgrace and even though he made something of himself and he had lots of influential friends in Sydney you know he could have lived there the rest of his life with absolutely That's no what issues I'm but it was that it was niggling at the back of his head you know these people saw me as a failure the last time they saw me they saw me as a failure and he couldn't stand the idea of anyone anywhere thinking of John Towell as a failure. He had to be superior to everyone. He had to prove it. So being able to go back to London and going, huh, you guys made me go to the other side of the world, destitute. Well, I'm back and I'm going to contribute to your coffers and I'm going to, you know, do loads of charitable acts in the name of Quakers and there'll be nothing you can do to stop me. You'll just have to accept that I'm this great person. Mm. Unfortunately, shortly after returning, John's wife Mary became sick. I mean, I assume she'd been sick before she went out. And it was a bit like with John. The the climate really agreed with her. Yeah. And then she moved back to smoggy, dank, damp, mouldy London. And it just all came back full force. Despite hiring a live-in nurse called Sarah Hadler, the situation quickly deteriorated. And Mary died on December 12th, 1838. So they'd been married for just over 30 years. Despite his grief, John continued to try and gain admittance to the Quakers, attending meetings regularly as he had done before his transportation. It was at these meetings that he met a woman called Sarah Cupforth, and John decided he wanted to marry her. However, as she was a full member, this would not be possible, because as we know, full members can't marry non-full members. He's getting the other end of it now. Yeah. John tried asking to be accepted back into the fold, for love. I know I know you're probably going to hold the forging against me. But for love. I don't want to drag her out of the Quakers like I was forced out when I married for love the first time around. But when this appeal to the better nature of the Quakers failed, he simply married Sarah anyway, leading to her being excommunicated, much as he had been three decades before. Yeah. So he tried to do the noble and the right thing. And then He's when in that the wrong work, place. He needs to go back to Australia. The new couple spent seven years living a respectable middle-class life, and John, now 61, appeared to have reconciled himself to the fact that he would never be accepted as a full Quaker again. The reverence he holds the Quakers at. Yeah. 
well, they were everything he wanted to be. They were, you know, just so successful at business. There was, and the way that they could hold the line, they could hold themselves to this high standard. I think part of it was, you know, his dad had been a philanderer and he'd seen what that had done and it it caused him so much hardship as a child that he really respected these guys who just, no matter what temptation was thrown in their way, because they were living in London, for God's sake. You know, there were brothels, there was drinking, there was gambling, all those things they weren't allowed to do. This was the epicentre of where those things were done. And yet they still managed to hold themselves apart and keep keep themselves to that high ideal. Or hide it well enough. Yeah, or hide it well enough. Discreet. But there was that side of it. And then there's, you know, him hating himself for failing and just wanting a chance to get a do-over. Then, on January the 1st, 1845, in the town of Slough, a woman called Sarah Hart collapsed and died. Bear attack. (laughs) She was in her kitchen. Oh. She had been eating marmalade, I believe. Mm. Mm. So maybe a Paddington bear attack. Her neighbour heard her screaming and was surprised to see a man dressed as a Quaker leaving the little cottage where Sarah lived with her two children. By the time the neighbour reached Sarah, she was already dead. What is happening now? A doctor was called, who quickly suspected that the poor woman had been poisoned. The man in the Quaker outfit would be the prime suspect, but where had he gone? Where had he gone? Is it, um, um, where did he go? To a meeting? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is Slough. There are no Quakers in Slough. This isn't John. Is it John? It's a Quaker. It's a guy who's dressed as a Quaker leaving a house in Slough. The doctor took a guess and rushed to the local train station to ask the conductors if they had seen a Quaker get on any of the trains in the last half an hour. They confirmed that a man matching the description had indeed gotten on a train heading for London only a few minutes before, specifically Paddington Station. He's in cahoots with the bear. Now, in any other situation, that would have been the end of the matter. There was no way to outrun a train at the time, and as soon as the suspect got off in London, he could disappear amongst the large Quaker community that called the city home. So, yeah, it's a bit of a risk if you're a Quaker committing a murder in Slough, but if you can get back to London, you are one Quaker amongst thousands. And if the only description is, it was a Quaker gentleman, it's like, okay, here are 5,000 Quaker gentlemen. Um... He was wearing a hat, if it helps. They're all <clears throat> wearing goddamn hats. Impossible, isn't it? Yeah. However, that's Loki in the background drinking water. That's Jack's dog. That's he's, right, hydrate, buddy. He's, he's joined us for this one. However, it just so happened that an entrepreneurial man called Thomas Home had bought the licence to run the first commercial telegraph line with his brother. And it just so happened that this line ran from Paddington Station in London to Slough Train Station. What? Yep. As a result, the police in Slough were able to send a message to Paddington Station telling police to arrest a suspect dressed as a Quaker, which they had to spell K-W-A-K-E-R, as the telegraph system did not include the letter Q. (laughs) (laughs) And it actually took them more than a few seconds to work out what they meant. Because they were going... We need to arrest a quacar? What is a quacar? And then someone, oh, phonetically, Quaker, Quaker. Right, okay. Fortunately for the police, there was only one person dressed as a Quaker coming in from Slough. They followed him for a full day before deciding to arrest him. Why? I don't know. 
just wanted to bide the time, see if he did anything suspicious. And when they did arrest him, it turned out to be none other than John Terwell. It was quickly... I'm as- not shocked, by the way. <laughs> no. It There's was- some other Quaker bit named in this whole... <laughs> We don't know any of the names of Quakers in this story. Fair enough. I should have sprinkled yep. some more in, shouldn't yeah. I? I'm not, I'm not really trying to throw you off the scent. It was quickly established that Sarah Hart had been poisoned by prussic acid, which is a form of cyanide. And it just so happened that John used prussic acid as a treatment for his varicose veins. Hmm. When police questioned the local pharmacists, one called Henry Thomas confirmed that John Towell had filled his prescription on the day he had travelled to Slough. Damningly, he had also returned to get another prescription filled the following day before he was arrested, claiming that he had accidentally smashed the first bottle. So that's why the police waited for something damning like that. Yeah. You know, oh, that that potential poison that you sold me yesterday. Yep, all gone. Not going to be able to tell you where it's gone. Can I have some more, please? Yes, certainly. (laughs) Have, Have three, just in case. This is a pharmacy in the early 1800s. You can have whatever you want. We don't ask questions. But while there was means and opportunity, there did not appear to be a motive for murdering a random mother of two in Slough. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. That was until it was uncovered that Sarah Hart was not Sarah Hart. She was actually Sarah Hadler, the woman who had nursed John Towell's first wife as she lay dying. Did he blame her for the death? Well, after finding that out, people started to notice that the two orphan children of Sarah seemed to bear a striking resemblance to John. No, it's, it's they both had ginger hair, hair and squints. You no, know, it's it's um, it's John's dad, <laughs> Thomas Towell. Yeah, bear in Don't mind. Rule it out. Bear in mind at this point, John himself is sixty-one, so Thomas would be well in his eighties. Yeah, still swinging, <laughs> more so than he used to. Yeah, yeah. Not as tight, not as tight down there. Swinging lower. Yeah. Yeah. His testicles are just a pair of clackers. (laughs) It was revealed that John had been paying Sarah a regular allowance in return for her not revealing the affair and resulting bastard children. Mm. However, John had been experiencing some difficulties getting money from his holdings in Australia, and he was worried that Sarah would expose his lies as he was falling behind on her payments. And when I say, you know, he was paying her to, to be able to live... She was living in, like, a dirt-poor cottage. You know, she didn't have money for luxuries or anything. He was like, basically, I will give you enough money so you and my two children don't starve. But that's it. I don't want you getting ideas that you can, you know, get any more money from me. That's strange, the amount of money he's given away to charitable. Oh, I suppose the charitable stuff is... It's performative, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is... He's trying to hush up something that will get him... That would damage his reputation. Yeah, it's just more of a motive to pay. Yeah, but to pay enough to keep her out of the way. He doesn't want to pay her enough that she might want to think of moving closer. Right. Or that people might question where she's getting the money from. Because she's living at a level where people go, oh, well, I guess if she's breaking her back, bringing in, you know, washing and she's doing sewing and stuff, she could possibly subsist at this level. But if she was suddenly walking around with tiaras and ball gowns, it'd be like, what's Sarah Hart doing that I'm not doing? Because I don't have tiara money. Yeah, but you're not that good of a nurse. Well, no one knew that she was a nurse because she literally agreed to disappear. Right. Her mum hadn't heard from her in, like, the better part of a decade because she'd nursed John's dying wife. And then a couple of months after she died, Sarah just disappeared. I'm guessing already pregnant with the first child. 
And it's like, well, I don't need the scandal. I don't need people questioning whether I was... See, the Quakers had it right with John. Mm. He has very little impulse control. That seems to be quite true. Um, well, I suppose it's it's not impulsive to get on a train and go murder someone. Well, You it, don't do that impulsively. <laughs> it, apparently, this wasn't the first attempt. Because... This wasn't the first train... Yeah, well, he, he was going regularly to visit her to see his kids and to drop off the money. Right. And apparently the trip before this, they'd shared a meat pie and she had fallen ill. Right. But had recovered, so she'd had the galloping gut rot and she'd just put it down to bad mutton. Right. But it, looking back at it, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, it was probably his first attempt to poison and he hadn't known how much... He should have used, so he just kind of, oh, shit. And he couldn't, he couldn't figure out which half. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I should have marked this. Yeah. I thought I'd just remember <laughs> which half I... of the meat pie. Why did I use a symbol that looks the same both ways up? I shouldn't have marked it with an eye. Yeah. Ingest. Either ingest this piece of pie. <laughs> shit. With so much evidence against him, John's barrister, Sir Fitzroy Kelly was forced to think outside the box when it came to a defence. He suggested that the deadly dose of cyanide could have come, instead, from Sarah ingesting a large quantity of apple pips and accidentally poisoning herself. Yep. Apple pips. It was pointed out that, although apple seeds do indeed contain cyanide, you would need to eat upwards of several hundred to see any kind of effect. It's like a pint glass of pips, isn't it? Also, they would need to be ground up prior to being eaten, as the outer layer of the seeds are resistant to stomach acid. Mm. So you could eat pints and pints of apple pips, and you would still be fine. You would need to go to quite a bit of effort with a pestle and mortar to grind up hundreds of apple seeds, which means you'd be having bushels and bushels of apples. <laughs> this isn't something you could do on the fly. Yeah. Well, accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something you can do accidentally. <laughs> this, is, this is someone who's planning out a very deliberate sort of suicide. Yeah. <laughs> Spending days crushing these things. <laughs> <laughs> At least you'd know you were sure. Maybe I can bake a, a, a rudimentary bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, use, use the apple pips as flour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she died from these poisoned flatbreads. <laughs> Took her weeks to make them. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> if you just eat a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, just... Gives you a kick, that yeah. little cyanide kick. The defence did not convince the jury to acquit John Towell, but did lead to Sir Fitzroy Kelly being given the nickname Apple Pip Kelly, which I'm sure didn't annoy him in the slightest. Because yeah. that was it forever, is Apple Pips. <laughs> and he, he was like given this impossible defence. You know, it's like the guy clearly did it. He had means, motive and opportunity. You know, there was a... a, a it wasn't an unbroken chain of him being observed from leaving the murder victim to turning up in London but it was pretty well unbroken you know yeah. they'd been told he'd gone to the train station and from there he'd been observed so by the by the sort of standards of like did he do it mid 1800s <laughs> detection this was a bit of a slam dunk of a yeah, case yeah. ultimately there was very little that any defence barrister could have done is what I'm saying John Towell had finally been caught in a lie and this time the Quakers were not going to be able to bail him out for the sake of keeping up appearances yeah because it, it was still a Quaker. You know, all the uh, headlines in the newspapers were splashing it about, you know, like, Quaker kills woman. Mm. Not quite so godly now, are you, Quakers? Because you've had one member of your group that you did disavow many years ago commit a crime. <laughs> ah. Yeah. 
Meanwhile, members of the Catholic Church are sort of like, yes, <laughs> yes let's, let's all gang on the Quakers and not, not look at what we're doing. So is he, is it a hanging offence? Murder? Yeah. It's, it's, yes, sorry. Sucks to be him. <laughs> John himself, however, had been convinced that he would be going home. And he'd even organised for a nice meal to be prepared by his wife. Aye. And he'd invited friends round to share this meal. Such was his conviction that everything would be sorted out and that he'd be fine. How could he possibly believe that? I think it's, on some level, it's a defence strategy. But also, to this point... Yeah, because if you planned all that, how could you be hung? <laughs> well, you know, on, at the age of 61... The only times in his life he's failed, he's failed up. Yeah. You know, he's he's never actually experienced a negative consequence for his actions. You know, his forging, it was just like, oh, well, you've done that. Go and have a business opportunity in a tropical paradise. Go on, go over there and enjoy yourself. I, I think he honestly doesn't believe he can because, he you know, he should have been hung yeah. 38 years before. And no, he, he went on to become a respected businessman with lots of high up sort of connections so yeah he was he was quite shocked that he was found guilty and he was even more shocked when he was sentenced to death by hanging apparently though while he was in the condemned cell because he was waiting around a week and a half um he was so charming that the jailers were just doing everything they could for him they they were convinced that he he couldn't have been the man by the end of the week and a half they spent with him because he was just so kind and considerate about everything that he did he wrote notes of thanks to them all. Well, he knows how to. He knows how to play that Quaker part, doesn't he? Mm. He's been s- surrounded and. But I think it goes to show the power of his, you know, conviction and his personality. That even when he's a convicted murderer in a condemned cell, he was able to convince jailers that oh, he's a lovely man, and they were openly saying that they were crying when they left him for the last time, yeah. because they found him to be this amazingly. Um, godly, caring, empathetic man. He was escorted to the balcony of Aylesbury County Hall, where a temporary gallows had been erected, at 7.43am on March 28th, 1845. Now, it was a temporary gallows because they'd actually not hung anyone in Aylesbury for eight years prior to this, so it's going to be a big show. Yeah. And the balcony... Are people still into watching it? Yeah, oh yeah. It's a big thing. The balcony... You could only get to it. They had to erect um, temporary steps because they hadn't used it for so long and because the steps were in the main hall. They'd taken the steps out. Because right. <laughs> they are like, well, we've not hung anyone for seven years. Why do we need these steps? And then they had to build a temporary set of steps to get up to the temporary gallows. So it was all very sort of um, done on a shoestring, a bit shonky. You know, it wasn't... Is he going to die accidentally on the way? <laughs> well, just falling on the steps. Yeah, yeah. Did you slip, trip or fall on the way to your own execution? <laughs> took a splinter to the throat it was weird that he was walking up to the gallows at 7.43am as the time that had been given for the execution was 8am but it was being overseen by famous executioner William Calcraft who had a bit of a reputation for being unpredictable slapdash and just a bit shit he hadn't bothered to preset the rope because why would you and placed it around John Towell's neck before throwing it up over the beam and tying it off as a result when the trapdoor opened, John Towell didn't die instantly. That was too short. He was slowly strangled over the course of 20 agonising minutes on the balcony of the, you know, the city hall. Yeah, no one wants to watch that. Well, 
Due to the fact that the execution had taken place earlier than reported, many spectators walked into the square beneath the balcony to the eerie sight of a silent crowd watching the twitching body of John Tuell. So part of the the thing of it is it's all supposed to be theatre. That's the reason you, you use capital punishment, is to deter other people. And what was expected was you go, you get there just before, the person would come up, they would be given an opportunity to say their last words and they would shout out that they repent and they'd do all of that. And then you'd witness it and it'd be a short drop, dead. You'd all have a cheer and then you'd go off. So that's what people expected. Yeah, most of the people who witnessed this execution walked in while it was already in progress and they didn't get any of the ceremony and the, the ritual that makes it palatable. It was They just walked in to see a man stra- being strangled. Well, isn't that more of a deterrent? <laughs> well, no, it, it turned the people of Aylesbury, at least, off capital punishment. There was a lot of an outcry about this. They were like, no, this isn't... I don't want this happening to me. <laughs> well, it was more, you know, this isn't the way we treat humans. Right. You know, we're fine with, you know, carrying out the law if it's capital punishment, but this wasn't carrying out the law. This was just killing someone. Sadism. Yeah, is, is how a lot of people took it. John Towell's last words were reportedly... <laughs> Sorry. It's worse than that. Just repeated over and over again until the trapdoor opened. Oh dear. 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 And it would have gone on like that because it took William Calcraft a few goes to get that mm. rope over the beam. It took him even longer to tie it off. Yeah. So he was left kneeling with a noose around his neck for a good couple of minutes, just constantly repeating, oh, oh dear. Because I think that was probably the first moment at which it actually hit him that this was going to happen to him. he wasn't going for dinner later. Yeah. You know, he somewhere, I'm sure, expected his luck would hold and that someone would come and give him a reprieve or someone would come and go, no, of course he didn't kill this woman and I have the evidence to prove it. Or Mm. that someone from the Quakers would have paid someone off because they didn't want a Quaker. Because he he did want to wear his hat and his coat up there, and he did. He was dressed as a Quaker when he walked to his death. Hmm. The execution was not a good day for John Towell. However, it was arguably a great day for the concept of electronic communication. The story of how a telegraph had ensured a murderer was brought to justice was a massive PR success, and in the coming decades, more and more telegraph lines were set up, ushering in the communication age. So... When I say that Thomas Home had set up the first private telegraph line, he bought the license for it. It wasn't like he was having to fight people off to get that. It wasn't like it was a plum contract. He was like taking a punt on something that could easily have become a dead technology. But this story, and it was written up in all the newspapers and it was referred to as the electric constable. Right. It, it was just this massive PR success. And suddenly everyone was like, oh, we should have these lines everywhere. Yeah, look what they can do. Yeah. If I'm murdered, I want to make sure that my murder is brought to justice. We need a line to Haringey. No, we need a line to Sheffield. So, so strange, the look of having that particular line. Yeah. Why? Why that? Why? Why Paddington to that station as well? Well, this was a test case, basically. A lot of the Fucking money that Tom Ho made was just. Um, as a novelty so you could send something miles away and then you get a response back so people would send a message just to send a message it's yeah. like um the the telegraph operator on the titanic 
most of what he was doing was making money privately by just sending random messages that the passengers wanted to be charged by the letter. Right. And he would send it and it would be um, sort of getting to the destination in New York. So he'd send it to a carrier and it'd go down the coast and then it'd get to New York. So it's like people were sending telegraphs to themselves from the Titanic that they could then pick up in New York. Right. Just to, ooh, look at this. You know, like a novelty. And that's what this line between Slough and Paddington was, essentially. It was this novelty thing. Thomas was making most of his money giving people tours and showing them how it worked. Yeah. Rather than actually using it to pass on business and information and things like that. If you want to see the telegraph machines that sent and received the messages that led to John being caught and executed, they are on display to this very day at the Science Museum in London. Nice. With this story? Yes, it's yeah. linked to this story, yeah. It will say. Yeah. yeah. And the source for this episode, Rose the main source. source, the peculiar case of the electric constable, a true tale of passion, poison and pursuit by Carol Baxter. And it's, it starts with the murder and it goes through all the details because they managed to piece together quite a lot of what all of the key players did. It goes through all the issues with the science because this was really, really early on in terms of uh, forensic detection and in terms of, you know, chemical composition as a way of finding poison. So they basically took her stomach and a load of the things that were about on the table where she'd been eating before she collapsed to a random bloke who was a chemist and went, What's in this? Was the poison? Can you find poison? And they just kept testing for poisons until they hit on one. And there was still, you know, this, the, they were making up techniques on the fly to try and detect this poison. It's like, hmm, it may react with this. Okay, no, that's not worked. Hmm, maybe if I cut off a little bit of the stomach and lick it. No, no, that's not helped at all. Yeah, because you haven't got the test yet. Well, this guy developed the test pretty much yeah, yeah. to do this. And then he had to stand up in court and he's like, you know, I, I'm confident that there's, um, you know, prussic acid in, in this. And it's like, how? Oh, well... I invented this test last week and what I did was, I'd, and he described it and obviously the jury were just like, I don't understand that, but he's a medical man and he's <laughs> telling me that this is what's happened and this was while there was yeah. still trust in medical men. So they were just like, oh, well, if the doctor says that it's there, you know, that's fine. We'll go with that. She was poisoned. Poisoned. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, what's your job? Oh, I'm, I, I own a pharmacy. Hmm. Yeah. yeah it's not no, looking good for you. absolutely no chance. No, and I, I, he did murder her. I mean, there's no, there's no one else who would, because she, she had friends with the other women who lived in the little row of cottages. But she very much, she was doing what she'd been asked because I think she genuinely loved John. There was no other Quaker. That no, there were no other Quakers there. No one else knew. Even her parents didn't know where she was. She'd taken on a whole new identity and built this tiny little life in a tiny little community where she would go to the local pub, she would do the jobs that she did around that little area, and she had a few friends there. She wasn't going to London. She wasn't, you know, trying to make it difficult for John. She'd literally gone, okay, I'll disappear, and I will raise your bastard children, and I won't let anyone know that you did this shame. All I ask is that you give us enough to, you know, subsist off. And she did that for seven, eight years before he saw that it might ruin his reputation. I went, there's a loose end I can tie off. And he very nearly did. But it leads me to ask one further question. If he was a philanderer, like his dad, his dad had hundreds of bastard kids knocking around the place. How many times did he go through this plan and actually get away with the murder? 
were there other mistresses in other places who'd been inconvenient? Were there some Australian mistresses? And, you know, while he was sorting out his business that's why deals. He's pe- that's why he's paying them so little. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to split this between 25 different mistresses. Yeah. But, you know, was there a point in Australia where he's like, yeah, I've just because he went back over himself for a little while to tidy up his business dealings. I'm wondering if some of that tidying up was, well, best kill the mistresses. Yeah. <laughs> Dead, dead, dead. Okay, I think that's it. I've uh, got all of my money in trust. Um, Although you, you, I've you'd... got a guy to manage my rents. Killed all of the mistresses. Yes. The the botched first attempt, if mm. you were to take that as a first attempt, mm. would sort of point to that he wasn't very skilled in. He didn't know how to dispatch a person with prussic acid because you got to remember when he was in Australia, he owned a pharmacy, so he had access to a lot of chemicals and a lot of different preparations. When he moved back to London, he no longer owned a pharmacy. Right. He'd sold the pharmacy, and he was making his money through rents on all of the places. So he had a landlord over there who was collecting all of his rent for him and then sending him regular sums from right. that. So in Australia, he would have had access to loads of things. Maybe he used something else. Maybe he wasn't a cyanide guy. Maybe he liked strychnine or some other poison. Yeah, fair enough. And then he was like, oh, I'm going to have to pull the old disappearing mistress trick in England. And the only thing he had access to was his own varicose vein medication. It's like, well, any port in a storm, this will yeah, have to do. That makes sense. I mean, this is pure speculation. I, I don't think there was a rash of unexplained poisonings in Sydney about the time he was about to leave. We just drop them off and the... <laughs> you just, you just send them off on a horse. <laughs> just strap them to a horse and just smack its bum watch it run off into the outback that's, yeah, so it's done that's another problem solved yeah, it should have to be that yeah just leave the bones to be picked clean you by just leave vicious it. rampaging koalas you just leave the shoes out at night outside <laughs> and bring them back in in the morning oh, that'd be it nice spider bite ah no you'd, you'd be surprised how few deadly sort of interactions with poisonous animals in Australia there are to this day yeah. It's not it, it, the terror of it is, you know, when it does happen it's uh, mm. things swell up and you stop breathing and it's a horrific way to die, but it doesn't happen as often as all that at all, really. Hi there, it's Emma, chief organizer at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify, and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.